friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Really happy to be with you this week and also to bring you some great guests. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week. One of my favorite things is adoption. It's given my husband and I our fifth child, uh, a wonderful, wonderful girl who is a blessing to everyone who knows her. We'll be chatting with Elizabeth Kirk at the bottom of the hour about adoption and barriers to adoption and the culture of adoption. But first, we turn our attention to the lovely Sisters of Life. They do tremendous work helping women choose life. Sister Mary Grace is with us alongside our mutual, very good friend, Catherine Jean Lopez of the National Review. She works very closely with the Sisters and Campaigns for Life every day day on her feet, on the sidewalks, and also in the National Review and all, all, the, all the great work that she does. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the show, Catherine and Sister Mary Grace. Thank you. Thank you. Such a gift to be here. Sister, yeah. we wanted to take uh, yeah. some time here on, on our show and highlight the, the wonderful work that you and your fellow mm-hmm. sisters do. We wanted to hear about it and um, get our, our listeners interested in it and in, in praying for your Absolutely. work and in, and in knowing more about how the church, uh, all of us being the church, of course, aren't just we're not just about ideas and, and promoting good yeah. things as much as that is important we're also about physically helping with our hands and, and embracing you know, the results yeah. of, a, of a pro-life culture yeah absolutely it's it's one heart at a time but it's also a, a totally dependent on a, on a on a combined effort you know we're all in this together and that's one of the biggest gifts that we have as Sister of Life is kind of on the front line being able to see people from all different walks of life come together uh, and that can be sometimes the most supportive and powerful um, assistance we can give anyone is to give them a sense of we being with them, community, and a, and a swell, really a whole groundswell of people uniting to be there for them. There's nothing like human contact. There's nothing like seeing symp- yeah. sympathy in a fellow human being's eyes, an uh-huh. arm an arm ready to embrace. I think that that's um, without that, we we can really do no good, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, God has, God has entrusted a particular vision of his, of, his, of his self and his love to every human life, so um, we're all entrusted with this in incredible gift, not only to give of ourselves, but really reveal, reveal the face of God and his love and his life to the world and each other. And, and you're right, you, you can't replace a hug. You can't replace looking into someone's eyes and communicating, you know, I'm with you. You're not alone. God is merciful. All those things that we know and believe in our heart really become incarnate when we actually communicate them by word or a smile or, you know, picking someone up for an appointment or just sending them a text or encouraging them that we're there for them. Uh, that human relationship, for sure, it's, it's, it, it tells us who God is. He's personal and he's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sister, tell us, give us a thumbnail sketch of the Sisters of Life, who you are, uh, where you are, and, and what's, yeah. what is your mission, your vocation? Absolutely. That's a great question. Well, we, as, as you said, we're the Sisters of Life, and we're a Catholic religious community of sisters that, in essence, believe that every person is good. You know, that every single human life, no matter what we're going through, what we've been through, what we've done or haven't yet done, uh, that we're good. We're inherently sacred. Uh, and each one of us is a, is a unique reflection of, of God himself. But, you know, it's 
easy to say these things in passing or even hear it at church or hear it growing up, but today it can be even more easier to forget. Or, you know, maybe no one's ever spoken that truth to us. Or, you know, it's something we've kind of taken for granted. But the good news is that God doesn't forget these things about us. You know, He doesn't forget the way He loved us and what He made us for. And His plans are good for us. And we get to see this every day with the women that we get to work with. Uh, we, we do a number of different missions that includes uh, women who are struggling with a pregnancy uh, and helping them really to experience themselves as, as loved and supported, you know, whether that be practical, emotional needs and accompaniment so that they can make a decision in, in freedom, really, and courage and not be bound or set back by fear. Uh, and we also offer weekend retreats for people of all walks of life and at different points in their life just to rest again in, in the truths of who we are and why we're made and rest in the goodness of, of God's plan for us and that, that He's with us and for us and kind of be restored in those truths on a weekend getaway so that we can re-enter back into our lives based on um, the true reality of our lives as gifts. And we also uh, we do a bunch of other things. We also give talks and different opportunities for evangelization. We come and visit places that, that, want, to, that want to know the truth and, and delve in it more about their own goodness and, and meaning and purpose in life because it's so easily forgotten today and often the world can tell us, you know, unless you achieve, earn or prove yourself, you're only worthy of, of, of love and, and respect and that's so not true. You know, this is this is a gift that each one of us has, that we're, we're really made in God's image and likeness and we have a profound dignity without doing anything but just simply being ourselves. Uh, and we also have the great gift of, of walking alongside women who have suffered the experience of an abortion and see the infinite mercy of God meet them where they are, heal them and restore them to a new life and depth that they often didn't think was imaginable for them before. And so to see new life breathe into to every walk of life is such a gift, gift for us as sisters and, and really gives us as sisters faith to believe and see the wonders of God um, in each human heart as we walk with and accompany people. What a collection of beautiful things that you do. So, so needed yeah. in this world that's so atomized. People are so alone mm -hmm. and fragmented. And sister, how many there are you? That's a good question. We are, we are healthy and growing, which is good. We, um, we're just over about 115 now, around about there. And we're looking forward to um, welcoming actually in the house that I serve in here, uh, 10 brave young women that are going to courageously enter community in, in about a month's time Amazing. and we're spread out we're spread out all over the u.s where um and we're also in canada so most of our missions we were kind of born and raised in new york city uh, our founder cardinal o'connor was a navy chaplain uh, and also the archbishop of new york at the time in 1991 when he uh, really received the inspiration from the holy spirit to raise up a community of young women who would essentially lay down their lives for the truth that every good every person is good and to really proclaim that with their lives because it's worthy it's a truth worthy of every person being being yeah, filled with and, and reminded of and, and we need all of us need to hear that every day and, and to be reminded of it in our day and culture um, so it would allow us to grow um, in, the, in the identity of, of who we really are and that is children of God which, which really sets us free if there are yeah, any please. listeners if there are any listeners who, who lose hope sometimes about our youth and then mm -hmm. they hear you say that you have 10 young women yeah. who are ready oh, to yeah. lay down their lives and, and just serve God yeah. and their fellow man for the rest for the rest yeah. of their lives that's so that's beyond yeah. that's beyond thrilling and it fills all of our hearts yeah. with hope Catherine when you are very close to the Sisters for Life every time almost every time I see you um, at some function or another yeah. uh, you have one or two of these wonderful ladies with you sometimes more and um, <laughs> how did you meet them and how did you become so so intimate with them Gracie you, you um, love the uh, adoption topic and I actually remember there's there's an event that I did at a 
Jewish office um, on adoption. And we had, there's a picture, this is a great picture where there was one row of yarmulkes and one row of veil. (laughs) 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 And it was just a beautiful ecumenical coming together in New York. (laughs) I met the sisters, um, very long time ago, um, when I was I was doing um, pro life work in in New York City, and and the the sisters have always run well have since Cardinal O'Connor run the Respect off of Life Office in, in the Archdiocese of New York. Um, and one of the things that I love the most about the Sisters of Life, first of all, there there are pro life credibility. Cardinal O'Connor said, if if there's a woman who needs help from the who's pregnant and needs help come to the Catholic Church, and mm-hmm. and the Sisters of Life are how the church provides having women live with them and and all the other different ministries as Sister Mary Grace outlined, mm-hmm. but they also show us the way to be pro-life. How do you build a culture of life? They really are manifestation of the gospel of life that that um, John Paul II wrote about in in Evangelium Vitae all of those many years ago. And um, they show us that you can't, it's not enough to oppose abortion. It's not enough to want Roe v. Wade overturned. It's not enough to defund Planned Parenthood. We have to love people into life. Mm-hmm. You know, one of, um, they have a very popular uh, prayer called the Litany of Trust. And yeah. the beginning of the prayer is from the belief that I have to earn your love. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear that I am unlovable. Deliver me, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Pray this prayer and you realize first of all oh wait it's it, it must not only be me <laughs> you know mm-hmm. because somebody thought to write a prayer and mass produce it and you know so many of the girls and young women who go into abortion clinics are feeling like they're unlovable you know mm-hmm. that's that's in many cases why they're having sex in the first place you know um that, that they could never do this the sister can tell many, many more stories than I can, but I've seen with my own eyes girls be in front of Planned Parenthood, then go to the Sisters of Life convent and just be loved. They don't, the first word they say to you is not, don't have an abortion, you know, it's, do you want some tea, you know, get comfortable, you know, they they encounter them as human beings because they see. It's not hatred of abortion, it's love of the, the poor woman who even begins to contemplate it out of that out of that wretched place that that our heart is in exactly what a beautiful focus to put the focus on on loving that 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 poor woman the sisters of life really are are showing us how we can love with an issue you know the abortion issue and assisted suicide and all these threats uh, to innocent human life they really have become so politicized and the sisters sort of humanize the issue again by by yeah leading with love which is what we need to do you know Again, pro-lifers, I worry sometimes we, you know, we're busy and there's the temptation to just have your position or maybe just give a donation to the Sisters of Life, which you should absolutely consider doing. But also, do the people in our lives know that it's not judging that we're about. If you are pregnant and it was not planned, we will help you. We will love Mm -hmm. you. We will not judge Mm -hmm. you. I do worry sometimes, even when I'm standing outside an abortion clinic praying the rosary, 
especially in New York, there's such hostility. I worry that, that people think that we're judging as, as we're pray, praying, pray for us sinners. You know, I, I stand out there potential that, you know, we haven't been able to love these women better, you know, who deserve so much better than um, walking into an abortion clinic. And, you know, and, um, um, I, and so many of the women that stand outside abortion clinics and pray are themselves hurt by abortion. And what right. they're trying to do, right. and maybe other people don't understand this, is what they're trying to do is they're trying to keep other women safe from what hurt them because their lives have become in so many ways a misery of regret and repro- self-reproach and you're right I think most of us are activated by love but it how do we make that more present to others like the sisters of right. life do there's something about your habits and and your veils your set apartness that mm-hmm. inspires so much trust uh, sister Mary and it inspires trust yeah. in the human heart because we can see by the way by the way you dress mm-hmm. that you have yeah. you have made an act of great love and that you're mm-hmm. and that you are ready to love uh, your your the, the people around you with that unconditional love with which you know God loves you yeah yeah it's powerful you know I've only ever experienced the habit to be a bridge to people really mm-hmm. you know there's something there's something uh, powerful in it that it communicates to someone whether or not we even speak to them directly but seeing a sister can often um, you really, really proclaim the truth that God is with us you know he has not forgotten us um, he is not distant and far off he's actually right beside us he's on the streets he's walking on the pavements he's interested in us invested in us and um, he's really for us it's it's awesome to have the experiences that we do have even just walking on the streets and people just really it helps with conversation you know small chat is very limited when you're when you're wearing wearing the habit of a sister because people know what you're about and they know that you're there for you inherently most of the time and that really allows an openness uh, for people to receive the truth that God's God's with them you know and, he, and he's and he's not here to judge and set us apart but he's really here to, to welcome us home and respect our freedom and and give us an opportunity to live for something more than ourselves to, to have a hope that there might be something more than just what we see visibly with our eyes you know that that there's a deeper meaning and and a a journey that we're all on. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Catherine Jean Lopez of the National Review and also to Sister Mary Grace of the Sisters of Life, a growing, beautiful uh, order of nuns that devotes themselves in in a large part to to showing the um, to showing the face of love. So sister, what how did you find your vocation to the Sisters of Life? That's a great question. God really found me. <laughs> I didn't I definitely didn't grow up dreaming. This would be uh, a natural consequence in my life. Uh, I grew up in the beach uh, Sydney side in, in Australia and you know I never even met a sister growing up. So it was never on the horizon. Uh, but but God has a, a plan for each one of us and he knows exactly the right time uh, to invite us uh, and to draw us closer to himself. I was actually my first year out in high school and there was a big Catholic event that came to Sydney, Australia called World Youth Day. And uh, this, and it's kind of, it's one of these big events where really hundreds of thousands of Catholics descend upon one country. Uh, it's incredible and inspiring. Uh, but it wasn't in the big events that I really experienced the possibility of a vocation. And that was actually when I met the sisters at just a small event during this World Youth Day event. And I remember the first time I met the sisters, I was honestly just really taken aback by them. They were real, they were joyful, uh, and they were actually women deeply in love with someone. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and I had grown up Catholic my whole life, uh, and it was definitely, you know, it, it was a devotional faith. Like, I loved it. You know, I went, we went to Mass on Sundays. We prayed the rosary when we could. But it wasn't until I met the sisters that I really was awakened to the reality that Christianity is falling in love with the God who loved us first. Uh, and I saw that in these sisters. They embodied it. Uh, and that really kind of sparked a journey for myself to really just search for this God that was personal and real and actually made a difference in people's lives. And so I just pursued the sisters and, and kind of kept in touch with them for a couple of years. But I also went on to study and get a degree in theology and, and really honestly just wanted to spend the rest of my life either competing in, in sports or organizing sports events. That was kind of my my world dream to make the Olympics one day. That I thought I'd be pretty happy with that. Uh, but, you know, the more I searched and pursued that path, the more I could notice a restlessness in my heart that actually ached for more. And every time I thought of the more, I kept thinking about the way these sisters were living with love and life, and, and I wanted more of that. Um, and so eventually I, uh, I gave in and I made a, um, a secret trip to the U.S. and visited the sisters in the convent here in New York City. And I was, uh, and you know, I, I, at that point I still didn't know what God wanted, uh, but I realized that, you know, I had to ask God, what did he want for my life? What was his plan for me? Um, and waiting in the silence, he really spoke to my heart, you know, in a very simple but real way that we know when truth is spoken to us, uh, that he wanted me for himself. Being asked uh, that question of would you, would you follow me with your whole heart, my heart really had a response of its own that I wanted to follow him with everything. And so I went home and, and began to slowly pack up my life. And I've made the big trip across from Sydney to New York. And it's now been eight years that I've been a sister of life. And I'm constantly surprised by how much more Christ is constantly offering those who pursue him um, and how much he respects our freedom and really just wants us to be happy. <laughs> how delightful, sister. What a beautiful vocation yeah. story. And, and there's you. so much there's so much certainty in it. I guess when it's like falling in, well, it's, yeah. in, it's like any kind of falling in love right your eyes your eyes become full of that that one person and that's all you can see and you you make it happen right yeah yeah and without a doubt there were challenges almost every step of the way and there still are you know but um the beautiful thing about about the struggles you know leaving home and and daring to believe that god's plan for me is the best plan like all those those things that we all struggle with you know is is god really for me and bringing them to him um and allowing him the space to to respond and speak to us has allowed me to uh, really see how god will take care of everything in his time and his way we might not always see immediately what he's doing or why but he definitely gives us the grace at every point and over time sometimes he allows us to see what he was doing and a lot of the times he invites us to trust him in the mystery that he's always for us and he's always going to make something good and beautiful um out of pursuing him and, and following him and trusting that he's he's going to be there and sister were you always pro-life yeah. or is that is that was that something that um of course you believed but maybe you weren't so invested in it before you became a sister of life. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, I really was convicted actually when I was in high school. And I remember this, um, I would have been about 16 years old and we were asked in one of our religion classes to, to choose any kind of human rights movement in the world and then go and do a research topic on it. And I remember looking through all the sufferings of humanity, you know, and, and looking across, you know, all the different ways the human person is, is attacked or suffering or lacking. And for some reason at that age when I was 16, when I read about the reality of abortion, and the vulnerability not only of these these children that, that haven't been given the chance to live, but also these women that find themselves in, in situations where they feel like they don't have the support they need or they're, they're left alone, shattered my 16-year-old heart. And I thought, 
oh my goodness, how can we, how can we, how can we let this happen? And what, what more can we do to, to let these children see life and to allow these young women and women of all ages to, to experience uh, the gift of other women being there for them? And I experienced that in my own life of, of times when I've struggled or um, had low moments or really struggled through life. It's when women have come together and, and stood by each other that has been one of the most liberating and powerful experiences. And, um, and, and I wanted that for other women that were my age, other young girls that were going through potentially an experience like that to know that, that women standing by women is powerful and that it can set us all free. Hmm. It would be wonderful if, if our whole culture reflected that kind of, of solidarity, mm -hmm. solidarity with baby, solidarity yeah. with women, solidarity yeah. with the family. And yeah. Catherine, you wrote a piece, uh, a really fabulous piece in National Review, and, and you connected some dots for us. Later on in the show, we'll be talking to Ed Penton, Edward Penton, about the, the terrible situation in Afghanistan. And you connected for us, Catherine, how we, f and this is the name of the, the title of the piece, We Fail to Value Life in Afghanistan as at Home. I think you really, uh, again, connected the dots <laughs> as to how a disdain, a disdain for the most basic respect that, that we have as human beings, that solidarity for each other, the, the idea that all human beings are somehow valuable, um, is missing in in, in our culture and abortion here and also in, in these terrible scenes we're seeing in Afghanistan. Yeah, if you go back and read Humanity Vitae, Paul VI told us all of this would happen. So mm -hmm. much of what we're looking at in the in the world today. Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is like he talked about how with the introduction of artificial contraception, you're ultimately pitting man, man against woman, you know? Mm -hmm. And of course, with abortion, mother against child. And so if that most fundamental bond is broken, of course we're going to have so many different kinds of violence. I would even go so far, I mean, the, the, the violence that we tolerate in, on, in TV and music, it's just, it all, I believe, goes back to abortion and the fact that we look away from it, we pretend it's healthcare, we pretend it's uh, women's empowerment. It's miserable. And the more you spend time near abortion clinics, talking with women who are going in, who are so scared or so hardened because they've been hurt so much, it makes everything else make sense. You know, um, there's there's this poison in our bloodstream and it's not going to get better until we reject abortion. That's not just overturning Roe, like we were saying before. It means really living mm -hmm. the kinds of things that Sister Mary Grace has been talking about. I would recommend everybody, everybody who's just sort of shocked watching what's happening in Afghanistan or was shocked by the violence last summer, uh, go back and read Evangelium Vitae, you know, mm -hmm. the gospel of life really shows us how we can live differently and it's um it's an opportunity offered to us i think to some extent we've missed the boat and um and the existence of the sisters of life shows us what's possible if we really take up that that rallying cry that john paul ii issued and that cardinal o'connor was so much a part of in in founding um the sisters of life it is just all one garment isn't it one beautifully woven garment you choose life as at the beginning, at conception, you choose life at the end. When people are, are elderly and vulnerable and sick, you choose life. If you keep consistently choosing life, then our world becomes a world of peace and mutual respect. And you're right; it's a poison in our blood because we've made, a, you know, in our, you know, in our country, in our culture, we've made a fundamental choice to choose death 
to choose death in order mm-hmm. to liberate ourselves sexually. Although I always think, you know, we're really liberating unscrupulous men <laughs> more than anyone else. <laughs> but it really, it really does become a kind of enslavement. I, I don't listen to a lot of pop music anymore, but I, I recently heard a Rihanna song, a, uh, a Rihanna song that w- it was called Rude Boy. And it was so clear that the message was women use men or they're going to use you mm-hmm. and it's it's just it was it was such a misery to hear and but it it yeah this is this is what i'm seeing outside abortion clinics and in the streets of of manhattan and um girls deserve better than this you know and the the men need to know that that there's more to life than this and uh, th- i also want to mention gracie i just want to plug the sisters of life website um, you, you know, you can get a, a nice, um, deeper introduction um, into the sisters and their life and their ministry there, and, and some of the you know op- uh, opportunities that um, that you can you can uh, avail yourselves of, like the t- retreats. Um, there's mm-hmm. also a, a quarterly called Imprint that you can subscribe to for free, um, which is really a beautiful, beautiful little magazine. And th- I mentioned this, the Litany of Trust prayer. You can order some on the website. There's some other things. There's a beautiful children's book. Um, and there's also just out in the last week or so, there's actually a new litany of trust retreat book that you can get from Emmaus Press. And um, I highly recommend it. It's all, they're all tools to help you live the charism of the Sisters of Life, which is ultimately what we are called to as Christians in the world today. And what is the yeah. name of, how do we reach that website, Sister? It's sistersoflife.org. So it's www.sistersoflife.org. And the good news too, like gosh, as we talk about this and even even see that the troubles and the chaos that, that I think even as, as, as Catholics we can sometimes see even more. You know, it's like we can see the mess all the more, which can be a burden. But, you know, the surprising and, and good news that, that Jesus Christ has given us is that there's nothing bigger than the love and mercy of God. That in, in the midst of all the darkness and chaos and confusion, you know, Jesus Christ has the answers. And, you know, we're a seeking humanity that is, is desperate to know who we are. And we need to be reminded of those truths. But to be relieved to know that, that Christ is, he has won this battle for us and he, he alone can reveal each one of us to ourselves, you know, who we are as gift and and known by him and chosen to know life and you know i can i can never hear enough uh, the truth of god's mercy that you know mm-hmm. even at the times when you know all of us don't choose life you know whether whether we were not free to or, or we just made bad decisions that um that god's that god's mercy goes even there and that um you know our histories and even the ways that we're failed or struggle at the moment don't define us it's the love of god and his plan for us which is a fullness of life which is healing which is freedom so we never need to be afraid to to really to really seek the lord and and let him define us with his love and life well sister mary grace you you inspire us and fill us with hope and and also with the knowledge of god's mercy which is really the only thing we need to know in the end so that was sistersoflife.org and please be assured of our prayers thank you very much and i thank you catherine also for being here with us today and thank you for highlighting the work of the sisters it's really a great mercy that we have them in the world today thank you both together Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org.
welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we welcome back to the show Elizabeth Kirk. She is the director of Center of the Center for Law and the Human Person at Catholic University of America, and she's also an associate scholar for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Welcome back to the show, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me. You've been on before, and we've had wonderful conversations about adoption. You and I are both adoptive moms, and we and and we're. Uh, acknowledging that this month is National Adoption Month. Adoption mm -hmm. is, is a beautiful solution for lots of different uh, problems uh, that occur uh, in life and, and when, children, when children come along. And uh, it's, it's one that I know, in my opinion, and I think in yours, is, is one that, um, that's not as, as widely available as it ought to be and as easily accessible. And, and maybe also as prized and as honored as, as we wish it were. Adoption as an institution is one that most Americans, you know, the vast majority of Americans say that they admire. They think it's a noble institution uh, that has an um, important goal, which is, you know, finding a family for uh, a child who needs one. Um, but the reality is that adoption you know, especially vis-a-vis -vis abortion, is rarely chosen. Um, mm -hmm. We know that the statistics are that for every one infant placed for adoption at birth, uh, 50 are aborted. That's a so, shocking, um, a shocking statistic. Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, there are a lot of complex factors that impact women's decision making. It's something I spend a lot of time in my work trying to do. It's something that is especially pressing challenge post Dobbs to think about mm -hmm. uh, how we might help more women to see adoption as a meaningful option for an unexpected pregnancy. So you, you mentioned that in your work, you've, you've, you've looked at these obstacles that we find to adoption, to, to placing children for adoption, to choosing adoption instead of abortion, for instance. Can you name a couple that, that are especially compelling or, do you, or, or that you think are especially uh, foundational uh, to this issue? I think in terms of women's decision-making, again, I think it's complicated, but I think there's a number of things that we can kind of point to. One is, I do think, despite the fact that there's a very pro-adoption general sentiment among Americans, I think that there's this kind of subtle or soft anti-adoption bias. And I think that women who are facing unexpected pregnancies feel that. Uh, one study I read, just a quick story, uh, was of a young woman who told her, you know, her housemate, she was living in a maternity home, that she was planning to parent. And when she came, but she was secretly making an adoption plan. And when she came home from the hospital without her baby, she told her housemates that DCF, you know, child welfare had taken her child for suspected abuse because she thought that was a more acceptable story than admitting that she had placed her child for adoption. So I think there, there is this, this anti-adoption bias. You know, many people report that they feel there's a kind of shame associated with it. There's a narrative of ab abandonment that placing a child for adoption is, is unnatural or something a bad mother would do. There's also a lack of education. Many people conflate adoption with the foster care system. And so they think that placing a child for adoption means their child will go into the system and they don't realize that they have agency, that they get to pick the parents who will take their child home from the hospital, that it's not at all connected with the child welfare system. So these are some of the things that I think impact women's decision making. Do you think there's think, an element of, of women, um, mothers, 
feeling a fear that they will worry about the child for the rest of of their lives not knowing if the child is happy or unhappy and i know that that's a that's a that's a strange thing to think about when you're when the other option is to end the child's life but maybe that seems safer in a sense for them i do think it's that's the case i think there's two things going on there one is you know there's again a, a kind of lack of understanding of contemporary practices of adoption so they're they're thinking of a kind of former way where a child was whisked away they didn't know what happened to it they didn't know how it was doing that could couldn't be farther from the truth about contemporary practices of adoption, where open adoption is the norm, you know, rather than the kind of secrecy and shame. But I think, you know, your point raises a kind of deeper thing, which is like, I do think some women are meant, you know, probably all women, of course, do have a sort of um, it, it, abortion just seems like an easier uh, option, right? Because it, it resolves the situation. She doesn't have to be pregnant. She doesn't sort of have to a- admit or acknowledge her motherhood. Mm-hmm. And adoption, you know, of course, doesn't take that away. Abortion doesn't either, as we know. But um, in the moment, it seems like an easier option for women. Yeah, I, I think maybe giving birth, having that whole long pregnancy and giving birth at the time, I feel to the woman that it leaves more, many more scars upon her or many, many more signs of her motherhood that that an abortion seems like something you, you've erased the, the issue. While you and I both know, having worked with women who've been hurt by, by abortion, that the marks that abortion leaves might be less visible to the outside uh, viewer, but inside are very, very, very strong and very deep, no, on the woman who suffers an abortion. That's right. And I think, and the other piece of that is, is perhaps not really realizing the healing potential that adoption has. Mm-hmm. You know, in contrast, I think many women, um, especially women who, you know, do do kind of take ownership and agency and are able to kind of see distinctly the good of their child as opposed to their own good and and choose adoption like they there's you know, they have a kind of greater sense of, of peace about their decision um, as difficult as, as we have to admit that it is in, in the moment. What about adoption culture? What about the culture uh, out in society that supports the idea of adoption? Um, I, we, we alluded to that already, but uh, for instance, when I went to adopt um, our daughter from China, we I went in a big adoption group and everyone else in the group, almost everyone else in the group were couples who were uh, very uh, Christian, Protestant Christians and had come to this uh, decision with um, a lot, like a lot of support from their parish, I guess it's not a parish, from their church community, mm-hmm. uh, and from, from, the, from, their, um, from, from their tradition, from their Christian tradition. Uh, that's a beautiful, I thought that that was a beautiful thing, something I didn't really experience as a Catholic. Uh, I came to it I, uh, with a sense of vocation, but in a much more private way. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, I mean, we see this especially, I think, in foster care that, that churches and faith communities play an, an incredibly important role in recruiting and retaining foster and adoptive parents. And um, in some ways, this is just kind of natural because churches themselves are communities, right? And adoptive families often, especially if they're adopting older children or children with special needs or um, children who've experienced trauma, um, they they need those kind of wraparound services and, and communities of support. And churches are, are sort of 
you know, <laughs> ready to, to do that. That's, a, that's exactly what they do. Um, and so I do think there's for many and Christians in particular, I think there's a strong connection between so many of the beautiful teachings of our faith, right? We're all saved uh, in a certain sense by it through adoption as sons and daughters of God. And so we have this beautiful way of speaking about it. But I think in general there, the, again, I think there's this, um, very strong uh, public perception of adoption. And so it's something that's, it's respected. Uh, it's just really not chosen very often, either by women or, or by people who welcome children into their family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I, when my husband and I adopted, we didn't see, we didn't receive a lot of support, really, uh, from, from our, what, from our circles of acquaintance and, and, and friends. And, and some and even, I, yeah. and some were yeah. even negative about it. Uh, f- for something that we felt was uh, sort of a win-win-win <laughs> for our family, for the child, for for society, uh, but we didn't feel that kind of support, and it's troubled me ever since. And and it troubles me because I would like, I would like there to be a lot of support in everyone's hearts for for this beautiful um, solution to some of the world's greatest problems. Yeah, well, I do. I think I agree that that. For many people that what I call the kind of soft bias, you know, they say it's this beautiful thing and many, you know, as adoptive parents, I, I often hear, oh, you're so generous, you know, like we, we performed this great act of charity. Um, and, you know, and it, that itself reveals a kind of um, implicit bias that there's something sort of strange about adoption, right? Um, and, and again, I mean, I think the statistics are something like only 2% of Americans actually do adopt children. So even if people give lip service to it being a good institution, there is this dynamic where it's often thought of as a kind of second best Mm -hmm. solution. Well, and even we know that many, many couples would love to adopt, but the children just are not available. Or maybe I'm wrong, maybe the children are available, but they're in the foster care system or available in ways that the couples who are searching for children don't find uh, to be their path. Yeah, I mean, I think for for newborns, the 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 ratio is flipped. I mean, there's something like forty families waiting for every available newborn, and you know, the, I think there we have we have to see the impact of abortion, right? Mm-hmm. If a million children are being aborted, we, we you know, there's plenty of families waiting in line to adopt each one of those children. Um, in foster care, of course, there are children waiting to be adopted. Um, and so, but there, you know, it, we, I think we can lament that, but there are two different situations. I think it's not difficult to understand, especially given the lack of support you mentioned, why many prospective adoptive parents who feel able to welcome a newborn don't feel able to welcome an older child who bears the trauma of neglect or abuse or who's been bouncing around the foster care system for years. Mm-hmm. What about, and what about racial differences? Many couples are um, scared of adopting across racial lines. What do you think, how, how big do you think that impact is? Yeah, I mean, I think th- this question, and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's something that uh, is, is quite delicate in certain communities. And we see that certain communities, you know, simply do not place children for adoption at all um, because it's, it's seen as the sort of, dilution of ethnicity or, or, you know, traditions and culture. Um, you know, my perspective really is, is that, you know, children who need a family need a family, (laughs) you know? Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, while I think it's important to honor 
any adopted child's heritage and, you know, ethnic traditions. And I think those are beautiful things. I mean, I have a daughter who's part Finnish, (laughs) Um, you know, and and we read fairy tales from Finland together to, to honor that part of her, you know, biological history. Um, so, but I, but I think it's something that adoptive parents need to be aware of, but I don't think it should ever limit the available, um, loving or safe home for a child. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree with you. It's, uh, I, I'm, I'm always saddened when I see the, the those racial barriers, uh, pop up. And sometimes from the side of the adoption Um, authorities or the adoption agencies, right? As it um, as it seems to me unfortunate, because as you say, the children, when a child needs a home, that child needs a family, and and it, the, those racial differences shouldn't shouldn't stop us, even though they are real and they they do have consequences, as I've experienced in my own life my, with my Chinese daughter, in a minor sense, but I imagine that as she grows older, those things will be more. Um, Will will come more to the forefront for us, Elizabeth. You recently published a a paper with the Lozier Institute on the role of adoption in these in this time post jobs. Can you tell us about that and what was the what was the point of your of your research and paper? Sure. So you know, adoption does have a kind of a renewed vigor or application post jobs. We don't yet know the impact of Dobbs on women's decision makings, whether they'll simply travel, you know, to regimes that protect abortion access or whether they'll uh, choose to continue a pregnancy. But it's I think it's worth talking about the role that adoption can play. And so what I did in this in this paper is just to recommend a number of pro-adoption initiatives that could be appropriate for either the federal legislature or states to consider Uh, that would promote adoption. So some uh, examples would be enhancing the adoption tax credit, which, of course, makes it, you know, benefits adopted parents um, by by defraying the exorbitant costs of adoption. But it can also benefit um, the birth mother indirectly, um, you know, by, by allowing some of her expenses to be covered uh, and just sending a strong public message that we think adoption is something that's good. Um, other ideas that I suggested were like um, funding options counseling. So making sure that all of those medical professionals, hospitals, pregnancy resource centers are adequately trained to inform and support women who might want to learn about an adoption plan. Uh, you and I just, you know, we also talked about support services. I think funding post-adoption support services for both birth parents and adoptive parents, you know, acknowledging Adoption doesn't end at placement. It's a lifetime connection, and birth parents and adoptive parents continue to need support as they navigate um, a lifetime with that with that child. So there, there's a number of different, uh, you know, uh, those are just some of them that I recommended. Well, let me ask you: if a woman, uh, a young woman, especially, is contemplating abortion versus adoption, how does she know what to do next? Like, where does she find that information, and is that something that that could be facilitated legally? on a state-by-state basis or federally? Yeah, I mean, the legal varies by state, but, but you know, the one, one thing I would, one organization that I think very highly of is called, um, is called uh, Brave Love. And, you know, it's, it's bravelove.org, I think is, is their website. And they do a tremendous job of, of informing women about what adoption involves. They have 
many, many beautiful video testimonies of women who have chosen adoption and what it's like for them. They have support groups around the country. And so it might be just a good entry in a kind of non-threatening um, way to learn more about adoption uh, and, and then to find somebody in your state or your you know community uh, that facilitates adoptions. What a wonderful title, uh, I mean, uh, name for that organization, right? Brave Love. It is a, it is a very brave love that gives birth instead of aborts. And maybe yeah, getting yeah, absolutely maybe getting braver every day, right? <laughs> the more the the abortion um, juggernaut keeps keeps rolling along. Yeah. Um, how absolutely. wonderful! How wonderful that 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 exists. That your work exists, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. Elizabeth yeah, is thank the, you so much for having me. Elizabeth is the director of uh, the Center for Law and the Human Person at Catholic University of America and an associate scholar for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Thanks for doing uh, this. Uh, thanks for talking to me about adoption during National Adoption Month. Thank you. Take care. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation the Lord wants to have with us this Sunday, when the Church will mark for the fourth time the Sunday of the Word of God, which Pope Francis decreed in 2019 would take place on the third Sunday in ordinary time each year. He established it, he said, to help believers, to assist you and me, to grow in our knowledge of sacred scripture, to mine its inexhaustible riches, and to help better proclaim that treasure to the world. Sacred scripture, he added, is a constant dialogue between the Lord and his people. When approached in a spirit of prayer, it allows us to enter into the most consequential conversation of all. That's why when Conversations with Consequence was begun back in 2019, the Catholic Association asked me to contribute a reflection each week on the gospel for the upcoming Sunday so that we might better respond to the invitation Christ gives us to enter each week into a prayerful discussion that overflows into a dialogue of life. As we mark this weekend, the Sunday of the Word of God, we give thanks to the Lord for entering into colloquy with us, and we ask His help so that we might be able to bring many others into this life-changing, heart-to-heart exchange. Let's turn to the consequential conversation the Lord wants to have with us in our parishes this Sunday. St. Matthew tells us that Jesus left his native Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. The reason he did so was not just that his fellow Nazarenes had tried to kill him by tossing him off a cliff on which Nazareth had been built, but to fulfill a prophecy, the prophecy that Isaiah announced 700 years before, which we'll hear in Sunday's first reading. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. By that point in history, Zebulun and Naphtali, two regions named after two of the twelve sons of Jacob, had been annihilated by the invading Assyrians. Those who survived were still in the darkness, not only of collective trauma, but of subjugation. Isaiah's words were those of hope, that when the Messiah came, he would bring great light to illumine their existential gloom, that he would bring redemption to their slavery and objection. 
In the gospel, we see the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus, the light of the world, the long-awaited Messiah, came to them in order by his teaching, his miracles, his presence, and eventually his passion, death, and resurrection to lead them on an exodus from darkness into great light. He was going to help them see the light, live in the light, and walk as children of the light. That's why, as St. Matthew recounts for us, Jesus' first words were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is another way of saying, leave the darkness, come, believe in, live in the light. Then Jesus made that pilgrimage from darkness into light even more specific. He saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, fishing. He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Even though St. Peter's first words to the Lord were, recounted in St. Luke's version of this encounter, Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Even though he was a man living in darkness, Christ called him. And he left the darkness behind, as well as his boats, the biggest catch of fish in his life, and everything else, immediately to follow Christ into the light. As did his brother Andrew, as did James and John moments later. Such was the power of Christ, of his personality, of the way he radiated the luminous presence of God that ordinary hard-working men would leave everything on an instant to follow him. But that was just the beginning for the apostles. We likewise see in this Sunday's Gospel that they accompanied the Lord as he went through Galilee, passing on the light of his teaching and curing every disease and sickness, showing others that just as he had taken his first four disciples from the darkness of ignorance, suffering and pain into the light of knowledge and health, so he wanted to take their souls from the darkness of sin and doubt, the gloom of depression, the pall of grief, into the radiance of a life-changing relationship of love with him. The call that was so personal for Peter, Andrew, James, John, and later for Matthew, the tax collector turned evangelist, is meant to be just as personal for us. The Lord calls each of us by name. He points to you and to me with his dazzling divine digit, and he summons us to follow him into the light so that we in turn can become his light, illuminating the paths of others to him and through him, with him, and in him to his body, the church, and ultimately to the radiant house of the eternal father. It's important as we listen each Sunday to the word of God that we grasp that the conversation is not meant to be just informative, but transformative. The Lord wants it to be truly consequential, to fill us with the light of his truth and the incandescent flame of his love, and to send us out to illumine and inflame others. As we listen to him this Sunday, it's crucial to recognize the personal call that Christ makes to each of us to repent and leave any and all darkness behind and to believe by following him into the light, living and walking always illuminated by him. It's not enough for us as Christians just to turn the lights on for an hour on Sunday morning or for a few minutes before we go to bed, to live the rest of our life as if the shades are constantly down. Jesus calls us personally to walk and live with him in the light. And maturely and responsibly, he wants us to follow him on the pilgrimage out of the cave. Jesus is in his church's mission to bring great light to people sitting in darkness and dwelling in a land overshadowed by death. It's particularly relevant as we prepare on Sunday to mark the 50th anniversary of the dreadful, indeed diabolical, Roe versus Wade decision that legalized abortion in the United States and led to the industrial slaughter of over 65 million children made in Jesus' image and likeness since. There's no greater darkness than that, those that, that, than that exists in a culture that seeks to snuff out the light of life and love at its very beginning. 
We give thanks to God that last year, after 49 years of constant prayer, penance, witness, political and cultural engagement, and legal argumentation, the Supreme Court saw the light and overturned the pitch blackness of Roe. But we know that the Dobbs decision was just a beginning, not an end. There's still much work to do to create the conditions so that abortion will become unthinkable, so that pregnant women will be supported in every circumstance to bring their babies literally into the light and to have confidence that they will have what they need to grow in that light. There's still much work to do to change habits, attitudes, and practices that put women in vulnerable circumstances. There's still so much work to do in states that permit abortion or even celebrate its darkness as if abortion itself is somehow the light. So as we mark the 50th anniversary of Roe with the sadness at how much evil it unleashed and the gratitude that it's no longer the law of the land, we ask God for his grace so that the light that Jesus brought into the world, the light that shines in the darkness, the light that God is with us always until the end of time, the light that reminds us that whoever receives a little child in God's name receives him, that whatever we do to the least of his brothers and sisters, we do to him will radiate in all its splendor through the church and through each of us as believers so that every child will be loved, wanted, protected, and insisted with the love that God has for each of us. So we prepare for this Sunday of the Word of God as Jesus calls us to turn away from sin and believe in the gospel, as he calls us to himself, just as he called his first apostle, as he leads us out, as he teaches in our churches, proclaims the gospel of his kingdom, and cures diseases and illnesses. Let us ask him for the grace to respond as immediately, wholeheartedly, heroically, and perseveringly as Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew. So we seek to bring the gift of Jesus' light to all those persons and areas living in darkness, especially those dwelling in the valley of the culture of death, and lead them with us into God's kingdom of light and love and ultimately up the mountain of the heavenly Jerusalem. May the Lord of life and light bless us all. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 